Hello, and welcome back to Queer in College, the podcast mini-series about the queer student experience and some possible ways to think about breaking down barriers in a practical way. I'm Jesse, and I am so excited to talk to two student affairs queens today who are out there in the field thinking about these issues all the time. I'm joined today by Deborah Allen and Morgan Daney. Hey, y'all. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Quick introductions. Morgan attended North Carolina State University for undergrad and later received her Master's of Education in Student Affairs from Clemson University. And she now works as the Assistant Director for the Center for Inclusive Communities at Furman University in upstate South Carolina. And we also have Deborah Allen, who got her Master's in Student Affairs from Wright State University in Ohio. And she began her career in student affairs at Northern Kentucky University as the coordinator of African-American student affairs and now works as director of the Center for Inclusive Communities at Furman University. I wanted to start with an opening question. Um, what first comes to your mind when you think of the queer student experience as professionals in the field? My perspective is that it's different. For everyone, there is not one universal experience. Um, there are so many nuances and different experiences just within queer identities. And, um, you know, I think when you add additional identities on top of that, intersectional um, identities, whether that's race or gender or religion, um, you know, from my perspective, everyone's experience is uniquely different. Um, and so it's hard to define, I think, one um, broad queer experience for students in college. Yeah, thank you, Morgan. Um, Deborah, do you have any other thoughts? I mean, Morgan hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's exactly um, how I would describe, um, you know, the experience of uh, queer students in higher education. Um, again, it is very nuanced. Um, and every student is going to have a different experience and perspective. And, you know, I think we don't do enough to elevate the experiences of our queer, Black, and Indigenous students um, and other um, students of color who identify as queer and talking a lot about how those intersectional experiences really impact their lives, um, that they're kind of um, sometimes having these kind of duality of experiences related to race and gender and um, sexual orientation. So, you know, I think it's something that we're starting to talk more about, um, particularly when we think about like anti-Blackness um, and, you know, even internally to within communities, within racial ethnic groups, you know, some of the the just nuances and, and challenges um, that folks face, um, queer folks face um, being queer and kind of the cultural kind of implications of that experience. So um, definitely such a complex yeah. topic. Yeah, thank you for introducing um, both of you that topic of just intersectionality and how um, all of these things work together to produce different experiences. I definitely don't think there is a universal queer experience. And I, I feel like my own experience was, was pretty successful um, in a lot of ways because of my 
privilege that allowed me to fit into the dominant culture at Furman's, um, on Furman's campus. Um, so how, how do you have practical strategies of making Furman, you know, an inclusive place, the Center for Inclusive Communities, when everyone's experience is so different? I think, you know, I will speak for both of us in terms of like the importance of lifting up our students and affirming them and their authentic selves is so important. You know, we do a lot. We've been talking a lot about like how we really serve as advocates for students um, and um, really kind of serve as co-conspirators to ensuring that that they have um, a worthwhile experience at, at Furman and are looked at as you know whole human beings and all of the experiences and identities that they you know encompass them um, and you know that's sometimes hard to put like a pin in and like pinpoint exactly what that looks like but you know between how we support our um, identity based and multicultural groups on campus um, the programming and support um, to you know I think institutionally ensuring that our practices and policies are creating space for students to um, thrive and, and to be able to identify and live how they, they choose and, and want. Um, and so, you know, I think institutionally, there are lots of things we need to do um, to better align with kind of creating that inclusive environment for queer students in particular. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, we do have some, um, some, some policies in place that are, are meant to kind of speak to that, you know, how we live that out as a university, I, I think um, sometimes is something that we grapple with and struggle with as, as professionals, I think. Hmm. I agree and second everything that Deborah said. Deborah has been working so hard at the um, 10,000 foot level, really examining big picture structures at Furman. And so I just want to give kudos to Deborah because um, she doesn't give, uh, she doesn't get enough praise as she deserves. Um, but some strategies um, that I think about often are, um, you know, what spaces do these students have access to and where are their voices being heard and lifted up and where are they not? Mm -hmm. I also think about where, where am I? What spaces do I have access to and who listens to me and how can I bring students along into those spaces, you know? So for example, you know, sometimes I might be put on a committee and there's not a student representative on that committee. So, you know, I would advocate that we have a student representative um, of, you know, different identities. Um, so I think that's one way, you know, another way I think is that we think about what physical spaces on campus, and I know you have an upcoming interview with someone who thinks about campus spaces, what physical spaces on campus are um, for certain students, you know, I think are institutionally and historically, universities have been built for um, students with dominant identities, you know, specifically white students, um, students from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, men. Um, and so how are we shifting that narrative and, and how are we creating spaces where, um, you know, students of different genders or different sexualities or different races where they can feel like that space is theirs and only for them. Mm. Um, 
you know, so I think about our physical space here in the CIC or like the um, women and gender studies lounge that they have over in, I forget what building that is, uh, Furman Hall, yeah. Um, so, so different things like that. Um, you know, I also think about, like Deborah mentioned, our multicultural and identity-based organizations is another way to create physical and emotional space for those students to be authentic with themselves. Um, so those are just a couple of, um, you know, strategies that I think about um, with students. And then, you know, as a professional, I think about how I model vulnerability, um, you know, with boundaries, of course, to a certain extent, but students are going to feel safe with you when you're able to open up to them um, and be, be vulnerable and be transparent um, about yourself and your identities um, to a certain extent. So I think about modeling that to students as well. Yeah, thank you. Okay, oh, sorry. oh, I was just gonna add, I just affirm what you said about being vulnerable. vulnerable. And I, I think with the work that we do, like we have to put ourselves out there, right? Like to build that trust and rapport. Um, particularly around like, you know, the, the dominant identities and, and power that we hold as professionals. Um, the other practical thing that I, I thought about is something that, you know, I hope we'll continue to do is like something as simple as modeling pronoun usage. Um, and, and we've, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job of that with orientation staff. And, and they have really, um, I think, taking that on as a, a common practice with orientation. But I would love to see that happen across all of our student groups that we are modeling pronoun usage um, in the activities and, and programs that we are part of. Yeah, thank you both for sharing those strategies. I hear um, just like a focus and an emphasis on the, the student experience and like making sure that that is first and at, at the forefront of of the work that you're doing, which I think is so cool. Um, I wanna talk about what you were saying, Morgan, about physical spaces some more, um, because I know Furman does not have like an LGBT resource center. And that's something that Boston College, where I'm at for master, my master's program also does not have. Um, and the conversation that students have about it is like, yes, of course we need this. Um, but then I hear administrators talk about how, um, or in my classes, we talk about how if we had that, would it become just this thing like we checked off the box and then we think the work is done? Um, so what do you, like, does Furman need one of these like physical spaces with naming this for LGBT students? Or what, what are some of the pros and cons that you might see for that? I mean, I think there have been conversations. Um, I think there are folks on campus who do believe that we need an LGBT resource center. And, and actually, um, our diversity, equity, and inclusion um, subcommittee that focuses on LGBTQ affairs was in the process of benchmarking some universities, um, Elon in particular, that have um, those types of spaces um, affinity for affinity groups, particularly LGBT students in the spring, and then the world blew up. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an ongoing conversation that they're hoping to, to have and, and wanting to benchmark other schools that um, have put you, uh, specific spaces, um, resource centers for LGBT students. Um, you know, I, this is the third institution I've, I've worked for and I've worked for lots of different types of schools um, and none of them had LGBT resource centers. Um, and I, you know, I think it, it how that 
space is formatted and structured, I think depends a lot on just how the institution um, functions. And um, so I think, you know, one of the things that I've felt and noticed at Furman is that there is some cause or, or a little bit of resistance to having separate spaces and affinity spaces for students. Um, and I don't, I don't personally agree with that, right? I think that there, there is so much um, in, it, it, it could be so powerful for students, um, for underrepresented students to have space, physical space that is for them, that is meant for them, that gives them an opportunity to recharge, re-energize, to be their authentic selves, to be able to know that, you know, they can be in community with folks who have similar experiences as them um, in this very white, cis, hetero world that we live in. Um, you know, I think there are lots of you know, things that go into that, right? Like it, it takes resources and, you know, money, obviously, to be able to make that happen, right? Um, I do believe if a university feels that it's a priority, that there are, there are ways to to prioritize it and to make it happen. Um, and so I, again, I think it is something as a university, um, I don't think we've collectively talked about like in terms of a strategic way, but there are plenty of folks on campus who feel like that would be um, a important addition to our kind of architectural and, and support structure at, at the university. Um, we, you know, we know that we're not able to serve our LGBT students the way that we need to. Um, we recognize that we don't have the infrastructure to be able to support them. Um, we do the best we can, right? And we're short staff right now. <laughs> so we do the best we can. And we've created, you know, our safe zone program since I've started in the last, you know, five years, um, you know, added more support for FBA from a Pride Alliance, our LGBT group. But there's just so much more I think we can do. And um, I struggle with just balancing like how we how we do that and, and how we have the capacity to support students how they need it um, to be right. supported. So cool. thank you. Um, Morgan, you have any ad additional thoughts? The other thing I'll add is that when institutions um, and universities start to create these separate offices and spaces that can be really affirming to students, um, sometimes students can feel like they need to choose mm. one of their identities. And you even see this sometimes, you know, with identity-based organizations. Um, and so, there has to be a focus on intentional collaboration between these spaces and these groups um, in order to recognize the very nuanced experiences that you know black queer students have or that disabled queer students have because it can be it can feel even more isolating for those students to feel like they have to choose one of their um, you know, marginalized identities and to not feel understood by either 
space or um, identity-based group. So I just put that out there as something to, you know, noodle on a little bit and um, for folks to consider, because I think those spaces and those groups are necessary and, and valuable and affirming, um, but there needs to be, you know, intention behind them. Yeah. I have not thought about that before, Morgan, um, but I find it so fascinating. And I think that like the Center for Inclusive Communities at Furman was a place that I always felt so affirmed and welcomed. And I know that a lot of students did. Um, and let, let's talk specifically about the naming of that center, um, because the, I know it doesn't use the word diversity in the title. And um, we've done this reading in our class that talks about how um, the word diversity is so easily palatable to people and like they love, like everyone loves hearing that a school is diverse and has diversity, um, but in what ways could that be disguising um, real issues um, and, and distracting from real lived experiences of students? Um, Sarah Ahmed is someone we read and she compares the word diversity to the shiny surface of an apple that has um, a rotten core. Um, so was, was that intentional in naming the CIC to not use that word or, or how do we do honest work as student affairs professionals while naming systems of oppression for what they are when engaging with students? I, I want Deborah to answer this. <laughs> I want Deborah to answer this question, but I'll just make a comment um, before. <laughs> um, to me, the word diversity has no action behind it. Mm. Yes. Cannot agree more. <laughs> um, so, some history behind the name. So, when we were in the process of, you know, creating a proposal to um, submit to senior administrators to create this center, you know, it, there were lots of conversations about naming, obviously, and what what that would look like. And, you know, the thing about these terms and language, like they're constantly changing, right? So like you name an office something and the next year there's a new term out there that, you know, um, you know, that is the, 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 you know, the ideal kind of um, term to, to use. And so, you know, I think we looked at some other institutions that were similar to ours and, and did some benchmarking and, you know, this, we created this two-pronged approach to our work. So, right, like, we're here to affirm and create a sense of belonging for our underrepresented students, celebrate them, but then also um, create a space where all students can critically engage with topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it was presented as, you know, the center for everyone, right? Everyone is able to come and um, to engage with the topics of equity, inclusion, social justice. Um, so, you know, I, I can't remember exactly why we landed on Center for Inclusive Communities. Um, I don't think I necessarily picked the name, um, but it kind of met the needs that we, at the time when we were talking about what it would look like to meet, meet the, our goals as an office. You know, being transparent, I think that those priorities have shifted. Um, you know, I think that we, and Morgan and I talk about this all the time, we can do so much more um, to meet that first prong, 
right, to ensure that our marginalized students, our underrepresented students on campus are supported and advocated for and have the resources um, that, that they need to thrive at Furman. Um, because a lot of our students aren't thriving. And, and especially right now during COVID, that's just an added layer and, and how COVID has impacted communities of color, black and brown communities, right? Um, and everything that ha has happened, continues to happen related to racial violence um, perpetrated against black folks um, in our country. All of those things are wrapped into this. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've continued to grapple with like, use of terminology and language and what is, you know, what speaks to our mission and goals and priorities as an office and as an institution. Um, and, you know, it, in the last year, we've seen more of a shift to like language around justice and equity and anti-racism, right? Like those are like terms that have been around forever, like ever and ever, right? But now they're becoming um, more, I guess, widely used and known. Um, people have had these like awakenings in the last year. I feel like every like few years, there's like a group that has an awakening um, around issues related to racial injustice. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a roundabout way, but I, I, I yeah, I struggle with the term diversity. I, I think it is an empty gesture. Um, it really, means nothing <laughs> Sounds yeah. really harsh but um it, it's what we do like what are you know asking ourselves what are we doing to in, engage in equitable practices that are rooted in justice that are rooted in you know dare i say liberation of uh, our marginalized students right like can we get there can we be that imaginative and I don't know, you know, like I, we work in these like white supremacist structures. We're working within the system to make these these really big changes, and it's 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 challenging. Um, and so I, again, Morgan and I talk about this all the time, and I am always grappling with like how I do this as I'm kind of moving up the ranks as like a mid manager, you know, hopefully eventual, eventually senior <laughs> administrator, wow. you know, how do, you, how do you work within the system, but still from an equity lens and ensuring that we're doing everything we can to, um, like all of our practices are rooted in equity and justice. Yeah. That Deborah is like the biggest question I have right now and you've used the word grappling um a couple times like I just feel like I have been doing so much grappling with these huge issues and like a lot of times have just felt like overwhelmed because like you said like higher education is criticized for being like one of these systems that has always been dominated by white people and is for white people and still is the issues have just morphed and changed over time um so how do you like on a personal level, the both of you battle like a feeling of being overwhelmed by these deep rooted issues that prevent the success of students with marginalized identities who have been disenfranchised by these gendered racialized systems. I know that's a big question too. I, I mean, we keep saying it, but we, I literally think about this every single day mm -hmm. and if I didn't think about it every day, that to me would feel like I was being complacent. 
Mm. And um, I think this internal sense of um, dissonance is good. It's motivating. Um, you know, I, we say all the time, we, Deborah and I, because you can't tell we're like, our brains are connected, I think. Um, I, I say to Deborah all the time that um, I find it hard because this higher education is the system that I have chosen to work in. Mm. And I, to some extent, I have to accept that. But what I don't accept is that um, I, you know, I believe that I can make change and that, you know, by building coalitions with people and um, finding like-minded people that are oriented towards justice and like Deborah said, liberation, you know, it's a word we whisper, but you know, that we really, that lights a fire in us um, that we can make change. And to answer your question more directly, Jesse, about like, how do we not get so overwhelmed? I actually did um, a mapping activity with some of my students recently because a lot of the students I work directly with are feeling overwhelmed by the, the what next, the action steps, the, okay, so I have these concepts and these frameworks, but now like, what do I do? And we did, um, I had them draw some circles on a piece of paper and the middle circle was their self. The next circle was, you know, um, maybe their friends or their people in their immediate community, their family. And then the next circle was their school or people in their classes. Um, so kind of that next bubble. And then the fourth circle was uh, maybe a little bit larger than that. So like their state or um, their larger community. And so really these circles represented our spheres of influence. It and sounds like we, a prof and Brenner's ecology map if you study. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like that. And so we took some time to intentionally brainstorm, you know, not only who specifically, who are the people in those spaces that I'm connected to, but what are the action steps that I can take within each circle? And you know, really connecting those action steps to a, a topic that you care about. Because, you know, it's not helpful if you say like, oh, I'm gonna go like to a rally or to a march, which, you know, that's a valid form of activism, but you have to be able to connect that to which sphere of influence is that, to which topic do I care about, you know, and, and really kind of bring it full circle. And then, you know, how else are you making, pushing for change? And what system is, are you working within? Does that make sense? So oh. that's for me, I actually, I did that with these students. And then I was like, I need to make this like a monthly practice. So I've now, you know, Deborah is smiling because I, <laughs> I have this, I have a passion planner that like forces me to reflect. And so I've made that part of my monthly reflection, thinking about my spheres of influence and, you know, which areas I'm, I'm pushing in and doing some re deep reflection in and, um, you know, what are my tangible action steps this month or this week? Um, so for me, that's how I really try to break it down. So it's less overwhelming. Um, but it doesn't mean the work is easy. And it doesn't mean that like, I don't get discouraged sometimes because I do. And, and Deborah listens to me and is such a, um, a consoling person. And, and you got to have those people who sometimes you can just sit down and be like, today was hard, you know, um, but then you get back up the next day and you go back to that action list. So that that's my answer. Deborah, I don't know what you want to um, share from your perspective. 
Yeah, thank you, Morgan. I feel like that was so practical and Mm -hmm. and tangible. So great. I mean, I I think I do a lot of that, right? I I get in my head a lot and I, you know, I get overwhelmed just by my own thoughts. Um, And so I, I have to do some similar things in like taking bits and pieces. And, and, you know, for me, it's really important for me to have space to like, this is when I'm gonna actively engage in this work and, and you know, throw my all in. But then there has to be times when you step back and you do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Um, and you're, you're practicing some self-care, whatever that looks like for you. So it's like this like back and forth of like, engaging and then kind of like retreating to make sure that you're um, doing what you need to to make sure that you are are healthy and and safe and taken care of. Um, so I agree that with a lot of what Morgan said and um, so I don't want to like be redundant but I I also was thinking about like some in terms of practical things that I've done. One of those is I've really been wanting to get into journaling and I'm just not good at it. Like I've tried for years and years and years and I'll like do Mama, one journal. Just I'll do one journal and then I, I'm like, I can't get back into it. So my dear friend, Kate Tabor, um, she shared a really cool idea to do like voice memos and to journal that way audibly. And I'm like, that's so great. So I started doing it and I, I like um, name each of them. So I know what it's about. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, I just started doing, it. I'm looking forward to like going back and actually listening to my thoughts at that moment. Um, so it could be at times when you're just like so overwhelmed or stressed or angry just to get it out right and just to say it and then have some time to actually reflect back on what what you shared um, and keeping that kind of for yourself so that's something I'm really excited to to make a common practice. Thank you Deborah. thank you both for just like the level of vulnerability you've brought to this podcast and I feel like there's so many big questions to think about. And we did a good job of just like kind of identifying what those were and um, your practical and tangible things were so great to think about as well. So thank you for for sharing those. I wanted, we're reaching kind of the end of our time, but I wanted to um, ask the last question of just what are like some educational resources that you think might be helpful for students or professionals um, who are trying to think about queer issues, but also larger issues. What have been some of those impactful sources for you? Jesse, I wanna thank you for your passion and activism and, and advocacy around queer issues as well. Um, we need people like you. So just thank you. My resource that I'm gonna share is um, related to racial justice, um, but I think you know, a lot of issues around social justice are centered in racial justice. So um, I'm sharing this framework, you know, with that lens, but also I think this framework can be applied to many different social justice issues as well, if they're wanting to learn more or dive in. Um, I'll send you this link too, but it's a website called whiteaccomplices.org. And it really talks about the difference between actors, allies, and accomplices. And it, um, It really helps people think about um, actionable ways, like I kind of talked about, to um, take action, whether that is monetarily or in your workspace or at home, um, 
you know, or with your kids, if that's a part of your life. Um, and really, it, it provides a great framework to think about that in other areas of your life, too. So that would be my one resource. Great. Thanks, Morgan. I'm trying to think of something like specific. Um, I, I've been, um, I, I, I have been um, really engaged with like social media and, and a lot of like the Instagram accounts that are out there. And the one that I just constantly am on is um, Erica Hart. I don't know if you follow Erica, but um, just an amazing queer activist um, who has been elevating other queer folks um, on their platform and um, recently has been doing a lot with Black History Month and kind of the intersections of queer identity. And I have like learned so much from that account, um, just from folks who have just some just fascinating stories and experiences. Um, and so, you know, I think there's just so many resources out there right now it can be overwhelming. Wow. Um, but I have found like just following some of like anti-racism daily and, and some of these other um, Instagram accounts that I think can also be really great for our students because they're kind of these concise resources and, you know, they read a lot and, and you know, have schoolwork. And so it's, it's nice to be able to use some kind of modern, um, um, using social media to, as a, as a, a way to, to learn more about um, racial justice and, and other um, topics related to equity, inclusion, and um, social justice issues. Yeah, I think that's great. Thank you. All right. Well, that concludes um, our time and the questions I had. Thank you so much again for joining us. I will keep you updated when I release the podcast and um, future episodes too, if you want to tune in. But thank you so much again um, for your wisdom. Thanks, Jesse. Don't lose your sparkle. Oh, yes, please don't. Uh, <laughs>